Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. And now your host, Eyal Levy. Welcome to the URM Podcast. Thank you so much for being here. It's crazy to think that we are now on our seventh year. Don't ask me how that all just flew by, but it did. Man, time moves fast. And it's only because of you, the listeners. If you'd like us to stick around another seven years, and there's a few simple things you can do that would really, really help us out. I would endlessly appreciate if you would, number one, share our episodes with your friends. Number two, post our episodes on your Facebook and Instagram and tag me at Levy URM Audio and at URM Academy and, of course, our guest. And number three, leave us reviews and five-star reviews wherever you can. We especially love iTunes reviews. Once again... Thank you for all the years and years of loyalty. I just want you to know that we will never charge you for this podcast, and I will always work as hard as possible to improve the episodes in every single way. All we ask in return is a share, a post, and tag us. Oh, and one last thing. Do you have a question you would like me to answer on an episode? I don't mean for a guest. I mean for me. It can be about anything. Email it to me at al at urm.academy. That's E-Y-A-L at U-R-M dot A-C-A-D-E-M-Y. There's no dot com on that. It's exactly the way I spelled it. And use the subject line, answer me al. All right, let's get on with it. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the URM podcast. I love these artist and producer episodes. They're actually my favorite to do. And what's really, really cool about this one is that the producer actually used to be in the band. So there's quite a bit of serious history here. So we've got none other than Daniel Bronstein, who is a longtime URM guest, Nail the Mix instructor, along with Rod Sudani from Volumes. And Again, Dan used to be in volumes at the very beginning. He's one of the people that was around for the inception of the band. So he only stuck around for an album and then followed his production career, which uh, volumes is a great band. But it seems like Dan made the right choice for himself because look at his production career. He's really, really excelled. I mean, he's great. He's fucking great. And now he worked with volumes again. So full circle. And uh, we talk all about their history together. And uh, it's a cool episode. It should also be said that Dan Bronstein is on Nail the Mix this month, July 2022, with the song Bend by Volumes. So it's uh, very appropriate to this episode. Let's get started. Rod and Daniel, welcome to the URM podcast. What's up, man? Good to be here. Thanks for having me and Dan. Glad to have you both. So we were just talking off air about how you're noticing that heavy music is experiencing a resurgence. Like, Yeah, obviously I listen to a lot of Octane and satellite radio and stuff like that. And I'm hearing kind of this new sound of metal slowly evolve, but I'm also hearing in the pop world, I think kind of these pop artists are getting bored of doing the same thing over and over again. And I think the listeners are getting bored of hearing it. I'm hearing just more influence from heavy music, more influence from metal and heavy rock. The general public is starting to be okay with that being a mainstream genre again, which is exciting. I feel like a few years ago, like rap was taking over and yeah. it was like the um, epitome of music. Rappers controlled the radio and, and like 
the the look of how it's like an artist should look and they were like dominating but then like the substance for that sort of music kind of was going out of the window i don't know like it was all sounding the same it was all sounding the same uh the substance is just you know it's not it's it lacks because it's just one specific stuff it's like money yada 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 and uh this i think people got kind of sick of it and then um looked elsewhere and just saw how bands are, you know, it's, it's really natural and organic and it's been going on for years, but, uh, yeah, came back. Okay. So whether perception and reality are two different things is a different conversation, but people do feel like the world is becoming a darker place. Um, and certainly if people feel that way, then to them, it's true. So yeah, just assuming that that's true. Do you think that the way that the world is going right now or feels like it's going has anything to do with why aggressive music is experiencing a resurgence. Yeah, I, I think I think it definitely is playing a part in it. I was talking with someone the other day just about, you know, the last couple of years and what everyone's gone through and kind of how life is like now as opposed to how it was before. And we were kind of saying and, and agreeing that life has kind of been sterilized a little bit. Like there's been a lot of enjoyment sucked out of things that we used to kind of do all the time and we took for granted. But when those things went away, I think people are, we're all kind of left with a void, right? And that's what you're talking about. We're like, you know, pe people are maybe more depressed or more anxious or looking for more of an outlet to experience something that's more extreme. Yeah, that's an interesting take, AL. Maybe it's true. I mean, maybe because everybody was at home, like there's a lot of pent up aggression and, you know, you want to go to a concert and like let it out. I like um, hip hop shows or those kinds of shows. They're more like fly and you feel good and you feel happy and you feel swag, you know, or whatever. But like when you go to a rock show, it's different. Like it's pent up aggression. You let it out like. It is different. So maybe at hip hop shows, even, you know, dude, there's mosh pits like it's literally a metal show. I mean, that's something that's totally been borrowed from heavy music. Like, you know, we grew up since we've been what, like 13 going to shows and watching these kids just yell at the audience, make a circle pit, you know, everyone mosh, go, go fucking crazy. You know, I want to see you guys kill each other or whatever. Like you're seeing that shit in hip hop and that you're seeing that same energy on stage and like kids love it. Cause yeah. at, at its, at its core, it's like raw human emotion. It's raw power. People just want to go to a show and let loose. And I think hip hop and metal are actually really similar. And we've always talked about this and Diego, who I started the band with, he would always say this, this to us. He was very ahead of his time. He was very young, but very ahead of his time. And he'd always be like, dude, hip hop is metal. It's the same thing. It's this constant groove and it makes you want to like nod your head and it, it's heavy, right? It's like the 808 is basically just, it's like a, another version of a guitar or a bass. Even some of the same rhythms that you hear in hip hop are starting to pop up in metal. And I think there's something to be said about that for sure. Yeah. I remember we were doing different animals. Diego took a future song. He copied the kick pattern and made one of our songs based on that. So that was pretty cool. Oh shit. Yeah. But yeah, hip hop's tight. I don't want to sound like I'm bashing it or anything, but I, cause I listen to rap every day, but we're, we're old we're just, now, bro. Yeah. We're just doing a little comparison here. That's the number one genre, I believe, because rock used to be. And I remember like a few years ago, people, I felt like bands were going out of style a little bit, you know, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like time. they were, that's how I felt. And I, we were still doing it, you know? And like, we watched, we watched the other industries or other genres just take over and get more recognition. And it was just like, it was a little heart disheartening, but it does seem like it's coming back around and it's like, you have to throw instruments into your music. You have to have that live instrumentation nowadays because people, you know, people want that and they need that. Not just being home, right? Like, I think there's more than that. Like, being home and 
just hearing doom, like all around you, like the economy is going to shit. There's war, there's a pandemic, people are dying, like uh, jobs, all these things, being home and isolated on top of this really uncertain situation. Like, I think it gives people an excess of uh, negative feelings that they need to get out somehow. And there's different ways to do that. Heavy music being one of the healthier ways. I, but I do think that people are just gravitating towards music and art that speaks to those types of feelings. Yeah. Or comes from those types of feelings. This stuff is real. I mean, when you get in there and you're writing a song, you're, you know, it's not particularly to a certain like degree to what other, you know, genres are doing. It's like this shit comes from the heart, really. Like emotion's emotion. I always say this too, and it spans across every genre, but people in general want to feel something when they experience art, whether that's happiness or sadness or whatever, you know, people or anger, art is art. And uh, I think that for a while, rock and metal were getting discounted as proper forms of mainstream art because it's, they're so extreme, right? So now, you know, that void is open and it's wanting to be filled and people are enjoying filling that with something more extreme. And you hear music, you know, even like Billie Eilish, when she came out with like Bad Guy and songs like that, those are very extreme songs. They're very unique and they're very uh, different, you know? And, and I think the listener has been trained now to accept something very different from any artist. So I think that that's exciting. You know, that, that, that inspires me too. It's like, I talk to all the bands I work with about training the listener as you go through your music career. So you train your fans to accept you for being multidimensional as an artist. You train your fans to be ready for when you put something out, they're, they're going to be okay with it sounding nothing like your old stuff. And I think that's important. And it, you have to keep things exciting as a band. With the new Spirit Box songs we just did. Which are killer, by the way. You've, you've checked them out? Sick. Yeah. Well, I've checked out What's Up. Awesome. Yeah. We, we wrote that Rotoscope song and we were like, damn, people are going to hate this shit. Or they're going to love it. We'll see how well you know, the band has trained their fans and their fans responded really positively to it, you know, they're cause they like to see that something came out from the band and go, okay, well now what, you know, what's it going to be? I want, I want to be surprised. I want to be shocked. You know, I think Opeth is a great example of a band that has trained their fans well, you know, cause they became a classic rock band basically. Yeah. And there are people who prefer them before that, but I don't think anybody feels like it was some crazy left turn or anything. Like you hear their stuff and it's like, yeah, it's just them. That's just what they do. He could put out an acoustic record, an instrumental acoustic record and with like just one guitar and the fans would just accept it as an Opeth record. And Mike Patton, another extreme example of someone who's trained his audience well, like he could fart into a microphone for 45 minutes straight and people would be like, okay, cool. I mean, I'd buy, I'd buy that shit for sure. Or it could be a soundtrack to like some hit movie. Yeah, it's whatever he wants. It, like he's trained his audience well. Yeah, listeners need to have more of an open mind and not like think that a band's debut album, like they have to sound like that forever. Like yeah. let people change and explore because then when you go down, when time goes by and you have all these eclectic albums from one band, it's like, wow, and I have all these worlds to go into for my favorite band because isn't that cool? A hundred percent. And I was reading somewhere too, you know, it's like you're not, 
supposed to like every song from a band you like. How can you? How can you? I think that if every song that a band puts out is like, oh, this is a banger and this is this is sick and this is perfect. It's like you're supposed to experience not liking a song from a band or it's okay to put out a, a bad song. Yeah, have some favorites, it's have okay. some of these favorites. Because it creates contrast, yeah. right? And, and everything is contrast. My, my favorite bands, the Beatles and Muse, I basically hate about 60% of their songs. But oh, it makes wow. you love the songs you love even more, right? Yeah. Dude, they're great songs. The ones I love are like God tier. Sometimes I'll go back and like listen to the ones I don't like. You know, you'll just come around and they'll end up being favorites. But uh... Or not. And that's okay. But what I'm wondering is, okay, so you talk about training your audience. How does a band train their audience? I think you have to do it from the beginning, right? Because I think there's a point where you get to a certain level as a band having one certain sound. And then at that point, you've kind of gathered your fan base of people that are expecting that sound every time. Right. And then, and then they're going to be upset. You know, if you're a 10 year career band and you've had the same sound for 10 years and your fans are die hard and they just want more and more of that same sound, they might be more inclined to, to poo poo your new material that you put out. That's totally different. Um, so I think it's something that has to be done from the jump basically, or at least very early on in the career. But I mean, I could be wrong. I mean, there's plenty of examples of bands that have totally changed their sound after being consistent for 10 years. But you talk about the Beatles and what an amazing example of a band that's completely trained their listeners to love the entire variety of everything they've put out Yep, just because they like what the heart of the band is, right? And from each of their albums, their sound is totally different. When they put out Yellow Submarine, I mean, let's like, <laughs> that's crazy. That was like, that's, I guess, the, the old school equivalent. Perfect example. That's, that's the one where <laughs> they almost lost. lost. <laughs> well, not, I wasn't alive back then, but yeah, I, I wasn't along for that one. <laughs> maybe we were too young, but uh, possibly they were maybe getting ridiculed for some of these albums. I'm not sure, but. Not too young. I wasn't, I wasn't even invented. I wasn't even near being invented when Yellow Submarine came out. Nonetheless, like years later, you can see now they're timeless and now people love them. And it's like, you might not have understood what they were doing then, but later on now you understand, you know, like that's the thing with music. People, every time I feel like we release an album, people hate it. And then two years later, they like it. That's funny. <laughs> that's another thing I've noticed definitely with heavy music. So I have two thoughts. So one with like training your audience. So basically long story short is you find a way to get your audience to accept you for who you are and be cool with not loving everything. And then I think, or basically expect the unexpected. So they, if the audience is going to expect the unexpected with you, and that's just part of your identity and part of how they know you, then it's less of a shock to their system than when a band that has sounded exactly the same for 15 years takes a complete left turn. It's almost like, Oh, how could they do that to me? They betrayed me. Yeah, exactly. When it comes to volumes, like, I mean, it's not like we, like, this is a good place to talk about. Cause I mean, like, you know, we started off as like screams and heavy music. Right. And then we implemented clean singing and people like lost their shit. Like it was such a big deal, but it's like. Do, people gave you shit for that? Yeah. And that's interesting because I've always known you guys as a band with clean singing that like fuses different influences. And like, so I came into knowing volumes, I guess, when you guys were already doing that stuff. So it's interesting for me to hear that 
you had trouble with that. Our job is just, you know, we want to get this music out to the masses. And it's like, well, you know, singing is a beautiful, you know, art form. And it's like we implement that into our music and it's like blows people's minds sometimes. And it's just crazy. But especially in the early days, yeah. Because back, you know, like the band formed in, was it 2009 is when we started the band? Yeah. So the band formed in 2009. And back then it was like, there was, there was no clean singing. And we put out the first EP and it was already enough just to have melodic sections with screaming over them. I feel like to us, that was like the equivalent of a chorus or something. Right. I mean, and back then Mm -hmm. we were making songs that were averaging five minutes and there was, we thought there was nothing wrong with that. Like it was just, it just kept going and going. I listened to these songs now and I'm like, Oh my God, this is so undigestible right but then as the band evolved like you know the next album via is when they were actually singing choruses and i think that's what rod's referring to is like when that came out people the listener was already kind of sort of ready for some melody because they were screaming and then there was also these melodic parts which was relatively unique for mm-hmm. the genre at the time um because basically the influences for the song were like mashuga misery signals and eye on dissonance. That was kind of what we were like, okay. Not heavy on the melody. Right. Except, you know, but misery signals, they had screaming over melodic parts. And that was, that was a really heavy influence. And like, we always forget how, how influenced by that band we were. And yeah, I think, yeah. So it was like, we did the EP and then because there was that melody, it was an, it was a segue. We kind of pre-trained the audience to be like, okay, now here's a melodic part, just like it was on the EP. But now homeboys singing over it, you know, and it's, it's a, it's like not so much of a shock. It's like, okay, this makes sense. And it's still surrounded by screaming, but it, it, it kind of presented the the band in like a way where it felt natural. Like, oh, this is, this is still the same band. This is just them evolving. Yeah. And Dan did a good job at, at doing that. Right. And, uh, but then from the listener's perspective, I think some people were just upset. Like, how could you include clean singing into your heavy music? And it's like, how couldn't you, you know? But what about now? Have they accepted it? I guess what I'm saying is like, at the time there was a shock, but like, do people even refer to you guys as a band with no clean singing. I think the whole genre kind of like fall, not saying we were like the leaders, but followed suit. Cause I think like Dan said at the time, there wasn't, it was kind of like emo music and heavy music. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And then we, you know, people start blending the two and putting pop choruses in their music and like people really couldn't understand it, but more people started to follow suit and it started to becoming more apparent in music. And now you can't like have a song without a great fucking singing melody chorus or what, what have you. Now that's the standard gold standard now, for the heavy rock song. Now it's the gold standard. And yeah, I mean, it's crazy because our job, we just want to get this out to the masses and let people enjoy music, heavy music, maybe start implementing more things we like, like pop music and these beautiful melodies and throw them in our music and... We like it. It's fun. It is interesting how clean singing is accepted now because, man, I remember the 90s when implementing clean vocals into your metal band was basically the biggest risk you could take. Yeah, here's here's the thing with that is that pe- we were doing screaming, man, like screaming. like, And you tell your parents about your band, like, oh, my, like my son's band, it's like the rah, rah, rah music, yeah. you know? Like, <laughs> people weren't digging the rah, 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 you know? So... They couldn't understand it, you know, and it's like, cool. so we wanted to pivot and throw in some more palpable things. And I think it's done very well, actually, because now we have songs like Ben that are all singing, not a touch yeah. of screaming. And hey, that song's doing very well in, in terms of plays and stuff. And people seem to like it. And, and same thing goes for the low tuned 
thing and the droney song thing. Because when we started the band in 2009, there really wasn't a huge selection of bands that tuned down super low. Not a huge selection, no. Not a huge selection. The ones that were there were Acacia Strain, After the Burial, and, and Meshuggah. Maybe Vale and Maya? I don't know. Maybe Vale. Corn. Yeah, Corn, for sure. Do Corn and Slipknot count? Because they're so big. Yeah, I feel like that's a different level. Yeah, okay. I won't even include them in this conversation. But I remember the, the day that the band got signed. We got signed to Media Scare Records. Is I took the, the head of the label, um, Baron, at the time, into my car outside of a show. And I played him. We had, we had our demo that we had made in my bedroom. That was like five songs. And we were doing program drums. We were doing DI guitars. We were doing things kind of the way people do things now. And it was pretty, pretty fucking uncommon to have program drums in a song and DI guitars. It was still at a time where most people were doing real instruments. And like I said before, stuff wasn't tuned quite as low. And I remember I took Baron in my car and I played him, probably played him wormholes. And I was like, listen, man, I guarantee you in five years, 10 years, everyone's going to be tuned low and songs are just going to be groovy the whole time. It's going to be these bouncy, groovy riffs. And he's like, you're totally right, man. You're totally right. You're, you're signed. Dan's 19 at the time, by the way. This guy's ahead of his time. How does it feel to be ahead of your time? <laughs> Dude, it was crazy, man. Back then, there was only two seven strings you could buy at Guitar Center. You know, there was like the Ibanez one and there was the Schecter one. They were both pieces of shit. And we bought two Schecter ones. Me, Diego and I bought a white one. He bought a black one. And we we're like, okay. So we're a seven string band like Corn now. That, and that was our influence. Actually, yeah. you say Corn. That was, we we're like, okay, what band uses a seven string? Corn. All right. So let's, let's do that. Let's copy Corn. Let's get seven strings. And then let's just do a lot of single note shit like Meshuggah did on, uh, you know, on nothing and on um, Catch 33. It's crazy. Even when you listen to Octane or something like that, every band is tuned down and like these riffs are all genty riffs. You know, this was, we didn't even have the word gent back then. We called it groove metal. Yeah. I'm curious about a few things. The whole being ahead of your time thing, it's an interesting topic to me because a lot of stuff that my band did didn't work for us. And then a few years later became part of the landscape. So for instance, program lights, we were doing those in like 2007, 2008, where it was like really, really tough to have programmed lights. And then suddenly a few years later, everyone's got her putting electronic music and metal, like got us so much hate, so much hate. And then of just a few years later, we're no longer in the scene. And that's just like, people do it and they don't get hate for it. And so like, to me, it's an interesting topic of doing things before they become part of the accepted language or just how things are done. And I've always thought that if you do it too early, like it's the same as doing it too late to a degree. It's kind of the same. So what I'm curious about is, so when you guys started doing the low tune guitars, I know you weren't the first, but there weren't that many around back then. It was definitely that and the program drums, all that. That's like definitely ahead of its time. Did you get hate for it? And what is it that allowed you to see it through, I guess, that didn't, like cause you to be like, eh, maybe that's pushing too far. During the beginning of the time, like this is definitely a Dan question, but I think these two, like Dan and Diego approached this way differently than like a typical band. Like they approached it from like pro tools in like, or out or something like <laughs> these guys, they were learning all these tools, you know, from pro tools and all these 
things you can use with these DAWs and like their creativities were like, obviously like going off and they just approached it way differently. And like, you know, used computer software for guitar, you know, sounds and shit. And like, it was new to me. I mean, I had no idea what the fuck was going on. So I was just watching them do all this and it was, uh, blowing my mind, but yeah. Yeah. Cause we had, bo- we had both spent a lot of time recording real instruments too. You know, I used to, I used to record bands in my bedroom after, after school. And I would do a lot of like crust punk sort of like power violence punk bands in my school. And it would just be like, come through. I'm going to plug you into my Behringer mixer into garage band. Fuck. Yes. And I've talked to you like quite a bit about this too, about like when you have less resources at your disposal, it makes you better when you have more resources. Mm -hmm. So like I spent the first five years doing what I do, having no option, but to bring in a drum set to my room, but to bring in an amp and bring in a guitar and, and, you know, record vocals in my closet and try to figure out how to make that sound good, you know? And I think when you, when you have the experience of knowing what it's like to have minimal resources, then when you finally get the computer that can handle a superior drummer and three tracks of guitar rig five or four whatever it was you're like oh my god the, the the possibilities are literally endless like i have an actual studio quality recorded drum set i didn't have to go and set up a, you know drums in my bedroom with two behringer you know mics and radio shack kick mic or whatever the fuck i was using at the time you know it was like okay i can really work with this yeah and these guys swung the bat multiple times before volumes happened you know they were in multiple bands beforehand like well that's where the band started from yeah my old band called the unborn which we were like a kind of progressive death metal with gent band yeah but what gave you the balls to see that through or was it just it was you were upgrading your set up and like your abilities, I guess, so much that the excitement of it, I know, you know, this from working with musicians, like so many musicians are scared. They're scared to take risks, scared of like how things will be perceived. Yeah. Just fucking scared. And a lot of them will not do anything. It's funny because you can never predict what's going to get big. So like, it's all a risk and it's all guesswork. I think Dan is a musician, right? He's, he is a musician, but he also is like an engineer, right? Like he's a producer and he like, at the time of that time of in, in his life, yeah, he was a guitar player, musician and thinking about songs, but like he was learning how to record and learning how to use these, these, uh, programs, right. And like even going to school for it. And like, I think, those tools just fell in his lap, right? Because you were going through everything. Like, this isn't working for me. I need something that's better. Yeah, or something. yeah. It was my hobby. But also, like, the, the reason I didn't give up is I, I like to think of myself as, like, I have a sickness and uh, that I'm a delusional optimist. And I would say probably the same thing about you, Rod, and maybe anyone that same here. joins a band. And same with you, you know? And I think there's a lot wow. of there's a lot of risk in that. Being a delusional optimist means that you think that things are going to work out for you, right? And that's technically... That's wrong, right? If you're going to look at the numbers and the percentages and the odds, your chance of succeeding with a dream or a vision that's non-standard, right, is very low. So you have to have a certain amount of like brain sickness to get into this industry and to, to convince yourself that what you're doing is going to work. And I think that that is, for me at least, that's always been the driving force is this like incredible sickness in my brain where I'm like, nope this is going to work. People are going to like this. I'm, I'm going to charge for it. I'm going to keep doing it. And in Rod's case, I mean, Rod is the only member of the band 
that is standing today that has literally been in the band from the first band practice to today and not had one departure or issue. And I mean, I think I just want to say that I have a lot of respect for that. I mean, that's crazy. Thanks, Dan. To be, to be a band for 13 years now. Yeah. I, I think it started off because I was a smart kid and I saw these two smart kids. I'm like, dude, their music is great. Like what they're doing is great. This is like something I must be a part of. Like it definitely came from Dan and Diego, like doing new things and having a new sound. And I was like, yo, like I want to be associated with this. I need to be with these guys. Like what's up, dude? Yo, let me, yo, Dan's mom, let me inside, please. <laughs> my Knock mom, my door. mom was very accommodating. <laughs> I'll, I'll put it that way. Delusional optimism i haven't heard it referred to that way but like you basically just summarize something that i think about a lot because uh, and i know i've said this on podcasts before but the way i think about it is you know i don't have kids and i don't want kids but if i were to have a kid and they wanted to take the same path as me how would i feel about that and in reality i'd feel really bad yeah. about it and <laughs> like and then the question is would I, I've done real well, like, you know, I've done real well and I'm very fortunate. And, um, but, 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 but like, it's one of those things where it almost didn't happen so many times and, uh, it could still all fall to yeah. shit. And, um, and I would, and I don't think that it's a good path for anybody. Like it's a torturous path and it's a very uncertain path. And would I want that for my own kids? Like, do I even think that my own kid would be able to pull it off. And if you look at the numbers, like you just said, the numbers are stacked against you. So like if I remove myself from the situation, cause I do have that delusional optimism where I always think shit's going to work out. I always have like, and I look at it third person. I'm like, man, sh this is a really bad idea. It's a really bad idea. Like you probably shouldn't do it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But isn't that how all successful stories come about? Like, I don't know, like people doubt you're doing yeah, something yeah. new. and They are. Like you say, like it could fall apart. But I mean, you're an entrepreneur. You just assimilate your own risk all the time. And like, but the reward is up there, you know, and this, this, this is what you do is great. You know, like it's, it's awesome. And it's going to only get bigger from here. So I'm not an Elon Musk fanboy at all. Like I respect the shit out of him, but I'm not huffing his farts like a bunch of people. But he did say something that I think is really cool, which is uh, that you shouldn't think about what happens if this doesn't work out. You should think about what happens if this does work out. Oh, dude. Yep. Yeah. Take that. Like, look at it from that frame. That's what my therapist tells me. Don't set your goals on what you don't want. Set your goals on what you do want. Yeah. If you ask someone, hey, what do you want for dinner? Oh, well, I don't want sushi. I don't want chicken. I don't want meat. I don't want this. Yeah, but what do you want? You got to know what you want. And what I was going to say before was I think going down this path of taking on a career and a goal and, a, and, a, and starting up a, a what it really is a business that has so much risk, you kind of have to be okay with torturing yourself. I can speak for myself personally. I've gone through so much depression, so much anxiety, so much self-doubt, so many times where I wanted to absolutely give up that I cannot even count. So many sessions that I've wanted to absolutely kill myself, you know, not literally kill myself as an expression. Um, but yeah, I think it's almost sadistic going into something like the audio world, the music world, being in a band. It's like, you almost have this idea of I'd rather, I'd rather like 
almost not exist than not fulfill this. It's like you, wow. you, you have this like, <laughs> you know what I mean? You're like, it's not worth living if I can't fulfill this. And that's how I've felt. I know exactly what you mean. And the thing is that like to someone who doesn't have that, they may not get it or they may think that you're being dramatic or something. But like, I, like to me, the thought of not following um, that voice is basically like, I don't know. I don't know what I would do. I might, I might kill myself. Like my life would lose all its meaning. If I try to imagine what it would be like to not do the things I do, I don't mean like if a business failed or, and I had to start another one. I don't mean that. I mean like, like a completely different path in life that isn't something that's guided by that voice. I don't know what I'd do. I don't know how I'd survive. Farmer's insurance uh, agency. I don't know how I would do it. I think, too, there's like a lot of successful people I've met. Like if they weren't, there's a lot who like, you know, they'd be successful at many different things. But there's a whole lot more of them that I've met that like they were built for the thing that they're doing. Yeah. And nothing else. And so it's really good that that thing worked out. Yeah, right. Exactly. Or else you'd see, you see him on the street somewhere. I mean, low, low key, man. I mean, my studio is, you know, right by a a main, main kind of area in town. And I have to say, I have seen members of multiple members and Rod will know probably one or two of them. I'm not going to say any names. I've seen them homeless. You know, the, and I, and I look out of the corner of my eye, I see a guy sleeping on the ground and I'm like, oh my God, that I was in a band with that dude in high school. Oh, wow. It's crazy. And it, when you, when you see that, it puts it in perspective you, cause you go, you look at that, you go, damn, if all my cards didn't fall on the table in the right order, that could have been me. I could be the one sleeping on the sidewalk. Yeah. You also got to give yourself credit because you had more discipline and you knew things were wrong and what was right. And you chose not to do certain things and you knew you had to come through, you know what I'm saying? But, uh, it's your choice, you know, it's your choice, what you want to do, man. Some things do hinder your life outside of your control, but the choice is yours really. But, um, yeah, the, the choice, if other people are going to accept what you do has nothing to do with you, but you know, like if the public is going to like what you do, you have no control over that. Or like if the industry is going to agree to spend money on you, things like that, you have no control over that stuff or, but you can control your own choices. hundred percent. Yeah. Taking ownership of that is really, really important because there are so many, I guess, so many uncertainties and there's so much stuff that, that you do have to just accept that at least the part that you can handle, you have to be absolutely on top of no room for error. Yeah. I want to say about Rod, and as an example as someone that's approached things from this delusional optimist standpoint, but also has been realistic. Rod's been going to school this whole time. And so, yeah. wow. So that's impressive. I mean, you just got your degree, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like, um, we were just talking about the voice in your head or whatever, but like, I guess I'm fascinated by a lot of different things other than music and I'm up for challenges. And so like, you know, like, audio engineering is cool. Then you have structural engineering and shit like that and how things work. And yeah, I mean, I'm just intrigued and like, I don't know, I went back to school and for what, for structural engineering? Well, no, now I'm going to sound lame. I actually went back for philosophy. I was just finishing up an undergrad, but, um, the CEO of creative live is a philosophy major. Yeah, dude, that's awesome. Um, it's a good place to start. 
can't really, I'm just trying to find avenues for myself as music is a tough business to be in, to be honest with you, because the business model is semi-broken. Like, you know, you make music to make money, but music's free. So I'm just trying to find new avenues for myself, but uh, I'm happy. I'm still, I'm still good. You know, I've still got what I, still got volumes and I'm just exploring other avenues and stuff. Sound like you've got a healthy mindset. I'm a little jealous. Yeah. No, he really does. Rod's always had a good head on his shoulders. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, yeah, things got dark with me, you know, when you're in a band and you you tend to, to soak up the wrong things in life. Like, I don't know, but, uh, you know, I was partying a lot and stuff and you realize that's not important. That's not what gets your band to the next level. You know, you got to go back to the fundamentals and stuff like that. And I've cut back a lot on that. And I'm just, I definitely do have like a new mindset on and I just want to see like, the band succeed and I want to see all my friends and like another metal band succeed too, you know? Yeah. Hey everybody. If you're enjoying this podcast then you should know that it's brought to you by URM Academy. URM Academy's mission is to create the next generation of audio professionals by giving them the inspiration and information to hone their craft and build a career doing what they love. You've probably heard me talk about nail the mix before. And if you're a member, you already know how amazing it is. At the beginning of the month, Nail the Mix members get the raw multi-tracks to a new song by artists like Lamb of God, Angels and Airwaves, Knock Loose, Opeth, Meshuggah, Bring Me the Horizon, Gojira, Asking Alexandria, Machine Head, and Papa Roach, among many, many others. Over 60 at this point. Then at the end of the month, the producer who mixed it comes on and does a live streaming walkthrough of exactly how they mix the song on the album and takes your questions live on air. And these are guys like TLA, Will Putney, Jens Bogren, Dan Lancaster, Tui Madsen, Andrew Wade, and many, many more. You'll also get access to MixLab, which is our collection of dozens of bite-sized mixing tutorials that cover all the basics as well as Portfolio Builder, which is a library of pro-quality multitracks cleared for use in your portfolio so your career will never again be held back by the quality of your source material. And for those of you who really want to step up their game, we have another membership tier called URM Enhance, which includes everything I already told you about and access to our massive library of fast tracks, which are deep, super detailed courses on intermediate and advanced topics like gain staging, mastering, low end, and so forth. It's over 500 hours of content, and man, let me tell you, this stuff is just insanely detailed. Enhanced members also get access to one-on-ones, which are basically office hour sessions with us, and Mix Rescue, which is where we open up one of your mixes and fix it up and talk you through exactly what we're doing at every step. So if any of that sounds interesting to you, if you're ready to level up your mixing skills in your audio career, head over to urm.academy to find out more. What do you consider to be the things that do get a band to the next level? Because I agree, the partying ain't it. Yeah, you got to be respectful to everyone you're working with, right? The management, the agents, the venues, the, the staff, like your fans, you can't cool guy them. Like, you know, you you learn a lot from this industry and, First and foremost, you got to have good music, right? And Volume's always had unique, cool music. Yeah, I mean, you can get lost in the sauce a little bit and party too much, but if you have the right intentions, like you want to make good music and you want to be there for your fans and you want to, you know, be there for the whole community and help, you know, venues grow, cities grow, music grow, 
this shit grow, you got to be nice to everybody and not cool guy people and stuff like that. And I used to cool, I used to be a little bit of a cool guy, but I've definitely learned a little bit, you know, that these people, fuck boy these pe yeah, these people are everything, you know, like, so yeah. And going back to Elon Musk, you mentioned him like, man, I've probably said this like to you y'all at some point, but like he was talking about when he made the cyber truck, he was talking about, um, how you create something and what what it is that allows you to create something that is going to be loved by the masses. And I think a big part of that, he said, um, he said, you don't create something by making something that you think other people are going to like. You make something that you like, and then you hope you're not alone in the world. Like you make something that you enjoy. That's and then awesome. guess what? Mm -hmm. You're not that unique. Other people will like what you like. The kiss of death for a band. We're talking about what makes a band successful. You want my opinion on what makes a band start to falter and be unsuccessful is when they start chasing something that isn't genuine in order to try to get success. You know, like, oh, if we if we do this, then people will like us. And to a certain extent, so that can be a really, really, really bad thing. Yeah. Yeah, you can um, go out of your means to get attention and it can backfire. You know, we've seen it happen so many times. Yeah, that's a good point, Dan. You want to be genuine. Like, you just got to have the right intentions while you're here. And you you don't want to be extra. Like, you know, you just, I don't know. People yeah. can sniff it out now. People can sniff it out. But, like, I think that the fact that it's all a gamble, right? Like, if you're doing stuff to please other people, that's as much as a gamble as anything else. So, like, you're guessing. You're trying to guess what other people are going to like. That seems really dumb. Right. <laughs> right. Like, you need to trust. You need to trust yourself. You need to trust your tastes and find a way to trust your instincts in that if something really turns you on artistically and speaks to your soul and uh, is awesome, in your opinion— that other people will agree. You just have to trust that. You can't start thinking, I'm going to write it this way because other people will like it because you're just, you're full of shit. You're guessing. You have no way of knowing that. That's how you make music mediocre. Another thing I like to always say is I'd rather hear a song that makes me pissed off because of how awful it is than hear a song that makes me feel nothing because the, the whole point yeah, of totally. art is to impact the listener, impact the viewer. It's in, it's the point is to invoke emotion. And if your art that you're making does not invoke any sort of emotion, then you failed straight up. And that's what's happening with watered down crap music. It's just, it's white noise. Okay. There's another song. There's another cool. Oh yeah. I heard, I heard that song. Yeah. yeah. It was cool. Like yeah. that's to me, that's so much worse than saying, I heard this new song and I fucking hated it. Because at least when you say you fucking hate something, you're like, you're angry, you're pissed. Feeling something. Yeah, you're feeling something. So that to me, mediocrity is the biggest form of failure. <laughs> Truly, I think I feel that way. Yeah, there's a lot of mediocrity going around. I mean, it's kind of the easiest thing. Yeah, I know. It seems to work sometimes though, but you know, it doesn't work for some people, really. I totally know what you're saying though about not feeling anything. What that reminds me of is being at the dentist's office and hearing music that they're playing over their radio, being like, you know, eight years old and getting my teeth cleaned and like the adult contemporary station oh, yeah. is on. And it's just like the most boring shit. But then, you know, that's all very successful music. But like, to me, it was like the most boring thing I could ever possibly imagine. And I never understood how that connected with anybody. As it turns out, most of those artists didn't really connect with that many people. As it turns out, 
their labels were paying to get them on the radio and into rotation. Yep. That's why they were on there. And most of them didn't last past one song. There's yeah. no longevity to it. You have wow. to create, to create longevity, you have to impact people emotionally, right? You have to take them on a journey and that's how you have a full career. You gotta be a good artist, man. You gotta, gotta be a good artist. And it all starts with having good, you just sit there, you have good ideas in your head and you just go for it, man. I don't know. That's why I like to write shit. Like most of the stuff that I write is, uh, it, it's not me sitting in front of the computer. Like I have a very, very, very difficult time just sitting with a guitar or whatever, like a keyboard or something and trying to come up with a song idea. For me, that that's not like, that's not the environment where I'm going to be enjoying a song in. So like, I'm usually in the shower or I'm like falling asleep or I'm taking a piss or whatever. I just showed wrong, wrought a song idea on my voice memo was literally called volumes piss. <laughs> and I, I, I didn't play him the first, the first version of it, but the first version is literally me pissing into the toilet and humming a thing into my phone. <laughs> and like, that's when the best ideas come it out, is, man. man. It really is. And so I think that, that because you're in that relaxed state, you're in that natural environment where your mind is wandering and everything is kind of calmed down and you don't have pressure to create for me personally, like that's where I can come up with ideas that I feel like are potent. Cause volumes mean something to Dan, you know? So he, he cares about it and he wants it to be genuine. And so I respect him for that. What's more genuine than pissing? <laughs> Bro, everyone pisses. That's relatable right there. Exactly. It's <laughs> universal. <laughs> if Dan didn't care, he would not care. And like, oh, you can make something and for volumes and it would, okay, cool. You know, but he cares. So. Dude, I'm telling if you think piss is good, you should hear shit. <laughs> I mean, the best ideas come when you're taking a dump. Come on, guys. We all know that. I was on my phone, though. I'm, I'm, all, I'm too distracted. Or when you're just hanging around, I guess, and on your bed or something. I don't know. Or sitting on a couch. I, a lot of, like sitting on a couch, mindlessly playing guitar, I find that a lot of good ideas happen there. Okay, so this is a good time to like bring this up. Co-writing, writing with artists, or more specifically, you guys working together. Um, I'm curious how that works in terms of writing, like what the process looks like. But for context for volumes, like in the beginning, it definitely was all DB and Diego, like leading the helm, being like scientists about this shit. What's working, what's not, you know, cause obviously we just had this conversation. These two were kind of ahead of their time and we're all in the backseat, just learning and watching and being supportive and stuff. And so I think Dan can more talk about how, when the, you know, how did it go for you guys in the beginning a little bit? We each kind of just were writing stuff on our own just before we even decided to form the band. And actually, we when we started doing writing for real, we would just sit in Diego's garage or his room and we'd either have, have amps that we plugged into or plug into guitar rig and he had an e-kit and we would just, just jam ideas like that. Um, and that was how a lot of the stuff was born. Um, just kids having fun, it sounds like. Having fun and, and I remember we wrote like we wrote the song wormholes in his bedroom with our friend um dj who was playing drums on a on an e-kit and like we just wrote the riff it popped out and then it was like you know i went home and recorded some shit he went home and recorded some shit and, uh, traditionally the, the writing process for this band after that has just been very very modern like it, it's been just passing ideas back and forth on the computer and stuff like that um and yeah, for, in, the, yeah. in the beginning it was really cool though because like it really was just 
a bunch of young kids genuinely happy about like playing music, being around each other, like just having that youthful feeling inside of you. And like these guys would write riffs, send them back to each other, send them to us. We were neighbors too. That also helped. Like all of us, we all grew up that in the West help. Valley. Yeah. So Diego and, and Gus's house was walking distance from my mom's house. So I'd walk over there, you know, and he'd walk over to my place. Rod lived three minutes down. Michael Barr lived five minutes down. Yeah. Chris, our drummer lived, we all lived in the same area and we all grew up going to the same shows, watching the same bands. We all went to pretty much the same schools for yeah. the most part. And, and, and stuff. we'd start jamming these riffs that Dan and Diego would come up with in like a studio or in our rehearsal spot. And like, there'll be times where like Diego will just be jamming and DB would be like, Oh, that's so sick. Let's, let's use that. Like, I remember that's how paid in full happened. Like Diego was just going, Oh yeah, yeah. And like, oh, that's sick. Do that, but do that up here. Do it. Right. And then there's like a song born, you know, like genuine kids getting in a room together and like, you know, making things happen and stuff. And it was so beautiful, man. Those were such good times. Yeah. And you know, as like Dan said, as times went on and members disbanded, um, things changed, right, and became a little bit more modern. With Diego kind of taking lead while DB stepped down, in a sense. I went on strike. <laughs> I went on strike uh, from the band for uh, you know a, a few years, maybe seven years or something like that. Yeah, there were there were there were things that you know as kids there there's a, like eight of us in the band at the time, and we were all doing things that we don't always agree with. You know, like <laughs> that'll happen. We're and, a bunch of fucking idiots, man. And it's easily to tick off, you know, you know, and so genuinely things just happen, unfortunately, and I don't know, yeah, yeah. But then yeah, on this last record, um, it was actually. Uh, Max Shad, who he he produced the False Idol Veil of Maya record, and he's actually a, a commercial jingle composer. He doesn't even produce metal usually, but he's massively talented. And um, he had actually written probably 60, 70% of the record when the band approached me to start writing with them again. And this was in the beginning of the pandemic. Um, so for this, this last project, it was, you know, kind of Max was like, here's what I have, you know, let's fill in the space. And then I wrote, you know, four or five songs and then we collaborated on them remotely because Max lives in Germany. It was a brand new crew, you know, it was a whole new kind of method. And then Rod would take the stuff on his computer and work on it and touch it up. And then, you know, um, I even I said this in my, my nail the mix uh, questionnaire that I was, I was going through last night, um, about how we, how we did it. And, you know, during the pandemic, me and Max were, we, we were being little bitches. We were like, no, we're not doing it. You know, we're not doing sessions. So Rod was like, all right, fuck it. I'll do it. You guys, you know, Mike, Mike and Mike come over to my house and we'd go on zoom with him. And Rod was, Rod was in there tracking vocals. Fearless. Fearless yeah. And he was, he was in there tracking vocals and doing all that and engineering and comping. And, and then he would shoot it back to me and we, we kind of did it that way. So this way it was like ultra modern that we did it, but it was still like, it wasn't like, it was a band that was used to jamming in a rehearsal space and writing. And then they're like, Oh shit, we can't see each other now. What are we going to do? It was like, it was already very familiar to write this. way. Yeah. Yeah. And and the band it's 12 years old. So there's a ton of eras and stuff, right? Like we just spoke about the first era, which was like the golden era for the band, right? You had two super talented producers creating a new style of sound and of metal for, you know, for people to enjoy. And so as that went on, like, you know, Diego took lead on No Sleep and um, sort of different animals, right? And um, I was definitely, like, shadowing him and watching. And then, yeah, Max Shad, who's been such a great um, 
friend to the band and understands the sound and he's like yeah. he understands what this band is he's always sort of played like a member in the background like he was involved with different animals and he'd come in and provide songs and it would be so sick you know and like and he ended up becoming really close with the band and as Diego was respectfully doing his thing and kind of making his way not so making his presence not so apparent in the band like Max we needed somebody like Filled Max to come fill the void because I couldn't do all this I couldn't do this stuff you know so getting Max to, to come on board to help us out was like the best thing to happen for the band which led to us being able to work with DB again because volumes was very chaotic and not a lot of people really wanted to work with the band but Max took a chance on us and yeah. um, really saved us a little bit, and I'm very thankful for him. And which led to us working with DB, and DB, you know, he does it his way, and you got to respect that. And how you know he wrote Bend all by, you know by himself and brought it to us, which you know we're just so happy to be able to work with DB again. And and I mean, look, his song is doing so well, you know, and we're so happy to be able to work with Max and Dan, like because they're volumes, they really are, you know. And we wanted to, I wanted to not like. I wanted it to be genuine because it was there was not like a lot of people to work with because it was just yeah. me, Nick, and Mike Terry at the time, and so yeah. And I, I also want to say I think for me and Max alike, you know, Diego passed away in ter early 2020, so I think that kind of gave us some some fuel. Like we have to honor this person's genius, you know. So I, I feel like every time for me personally, at least when I was writing some of these songs, I was imagining you know Diego was like watching me do it. You know, and it's kind of that that gave me it was like an extremely weird feeling of like, you know, this is something I'm revisiting that I created with this person that was so brilliant and, and so instrumental in this project, but that's no longer with us. And that kind of really put a fire under my ass to to make it something that I think if he heard it, I think he would he'd love it and sign off on it. Isn't that beautiful, man? That's so beautiful. Honoring the legacy, but like the way I said it sounds so like proper, I guess. What's a way to say it without it sounding that proper? Like the way you said it, I guess. I think that's good. It's honoring, it's honoring the legacy and... But vision too. Vision and our friendship. It's more than just legacy, yeah. Yeah, Volumes has a crazy story arc, dude. Yeah, it's unreal. Gnarly. It's like an anime show. It's crazy. Yeah. But bringing Dan back was just so cool, you know, but not to like over, it's just crazy. This band's been through so much and we got Michael Barr back we, in the band, which yeah, we, was also very inspiring. We miss well. Diego so much. We miss him every day. It's, it's gnarly. It's gnarly to lose a member, like person that you're so close with and stuff. And, um, nonetheless, working with DB is just feels so right. You know, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's his birth child. And so. He, he understands it very well, and so does Max. So working with them has been containing the band's, like, sound, you know? so Containing of, and moving it forward, yeah. right? Yeah. Dan, for you, like, considering how long it's been, uh, or it had been, getting back into it, once you were back in working on it, did it feel like a lot of time had elapsed or was it just like, yeah, just doing this thing feels like no time has passed. Dude, it felt, it felt like riding a bike. Like, honestly. Yeah. I figured. Okay. And I actually felt like I you had do this. <laughs> I had so much in my, in my brain that needed to come out too. So it was almost therapeutic or it was very therapeutic in a way. Cause that, that's who I am. Those are my roots. And I think throughout our 
our, our journeys in, in our careers with music, like we always kind of take sidesteps and go, Oh, you know, I'm not going to do this anymore. You know, like for me, I, I abandoned metal for about four or five years. I only worked on pop music. I thought metal was horrible and I never wanted to do it again, you know? And when I started up back again, working with spirit box and working with Dayseeker and, and silent planet and starting to rebuild my arsenal of these bands and starting to co-write with them. And then volumes popped up. I was, I think I had enough training already to kind of know what to do. And it felt just really, it was like really easy, you know, um, it was fun. It was fun and it was easy. And it was just the thing. Shit just kind of flowed out. Dan's and, a real artist, dude. He kind of like dipped. It sounds, yeah, he dipped out and went and lived other lives and did other, like absorbed <laughs> other music, right? And which makes him even a better producer today, you know, because he's so multifaceted. But uh, Rod's a very nice guy. Dan's the freaking man, dude. He's got ideas upon ideas. Idea factory. Do you feel like, uh, so... I'm just curious, all that time away, um, doing other things, like, even though it wasn't specifically this, has it informed, like, how you approach this? The reason I'm asking is just from my own experience of writing Doth songs again. It had been a long time, man, a really long time. After, you know, after I got, like, warmed up, like, it took me a moment to get warmed up, but then suddenly it was just like, yeah, this is what I do. Not just that, but like all the time that I had spent working on other things, like suddenly I feel like uh, I just knew what to do in a way that I didn't before. It's hard to explain. Yeah. No, it gives you a full new perspective because the journey that I went on after I sort of abandoned metal was a journey of working on pop music and hip hop and also doing a lot of uh, music for TV. So in doing all that stuff, it sort of uncovered the mystery of like, wait a minute, making a song is much simpler than, it, than you think. And I think that that's a pitfall that a lot of metal musicians experience is overthinking, chronic overthinking, and not just relying on instinct. Because, you know, especially when I was making music for, for sync, for, for television, you know, they give you, the company gives you, okay, you have to make a 12 song album and here's our references. You got to do an, you know, four Imagine Dragons songs. You have to do four Lumineers songs and you have to do four Drake songs, you know, or whatever the fuck it is. And it, that would never happen. It'd be like 12 of each. But anyway, you kind of have to go, all right, well, let's just, it's stream of conscious. You have to do it quick. You're like, all right, I'm going to crank this shit out. You make that in, you make a whole album in f- five days to a week and you, you're done. Wow. And you send it off and you go, okay, that was easy. That's insane. And then, you know, when it, when it comes to a pop session, like a pop writing session, um, you walk in that room, you're with the writer, you're with a, a producer, you're with an engineer, whatever you're with the artist. And by the time you leave that room, like your song is more or less done. You, you cut the vocal, the vocals written, the instrumentals written, all the parts are there. Maybe you do a little touch up after or you send it to mix or whatever, but there's no overthinking. It's just you, you follow, you follow your gut and you just roll with it. When I was able to start back working on writing metal again, I employed all that, which I learned from, from doing these other types of, of projects. And yeah, it, it kind of helped me to realize that I could simplify the process. It totally applied to rock and metal. No overthinking. That's my, that's my thing. And it, I mean, maybe it's like, I've trained myself to be lazy 
but, but I think the result of that is good sometimes. And just having that experience, right? Like working on working with artists and collecting that experience in those hours, it just, you just get more and more comfortable, right? Around people. Yeah. Oh, that's a, that's a big thing too. When you're used to doing thousands of sessions and being in the room with all sorts of different personalities. And I've, yes, I've worked with a lot of different personalities and it, it's helped me to sort of learn how to manage different types of people and in, increase my social skills in the studio, which I've talked to you b- about before, Al. but that's a big part of it too, right? Is you can't just shut down and, and be introverted. You have to create a comfortable environment when you're working with someone, you know, um, like my bands are, they're not just, they're not just clients. You know, my bands are like, they're my friends. They're my family. We hang out, we, we do stuff together. We talk all the time. It's like, and I think when you're comfortable with the people you work with, you're the quality of what you create can only get better because you're, you're breaking down that, that barrier. What is, what is your status in the band? Like, are you in the band or are you just producing this or is it just one of those like undefined sorts of things? Oh, I'm not in the band. Why don't you tell us? I want. I want to say some stuff too. No, I want to say some stuff too. I'm not in the band, but I do want to say that what I did with Volumes after I left the band, I still kept writing music with them, and sort of that was like the archetype for how I went on with my career. Okay, so it's like you're still like a partnership there. Yeah, it's a partnership. I think it's what a, a band producer relationship should be, right? It should feel like a, a ghost member. Yeah. I guess what I'm wondering is that right there. I know that you said that like all of the projects are like your family, all that, but this one has got to be a little bit more personal than a lot of other ones. And so what I'm wondering is even in the case of something this personal to you, that is your roots. Like you said, all these experiences that you had working with other people, it still must have uh, helped you with how to approach this. Even if you already had a ton of history in this. Of course. I mean, I think that all of our experiences, everyone in the band and myself included, all the time that we've had to develop ourselves and grow up and become, you know, adults and stuff like that. And to have all the different experiences that come with growing up, I think we all kind of came back together with like a newfound respect. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like Dan's not in the band. Like he's got his own work to do. He's got his own business, his own life. He's not, he'll never like play. I don't know if he'll never play in a band, but obviously like he's got his own career going, but he's not like in the lineup for volumes, but like he is volumes, right? In a sense, like he started the band. And so like we just touched on, like the landscape of the writing, everything's kind of changed and we just did happier, which was awesome to do. And now we're in such a great position because we all kind of like have felt each other out and have done happier. And like now we're in a good position to really go and do our next album together. And so like he'll be the him and he'll be the one he'll be the producer of the album and he like he says he plays like that role for bands right you want to be the producer but the producer he's like um tell us more about like the role of the producer and stuff i mean i i think there's there's different levels of doing it right there's like the guy you come to and you have the songs and you bring him in and you record them and then you leave or whatever but i i tend to do and I was just talking about like Rory from Dayseeker. We just finished their record and he had 
a daughter when we started the record and now she's grown up. So we were like, okay, we took a long time to make this. We didn't just. I was about to say, how long did that <laughs> <It> take? Was, <laughs> I want to say it's probably a year and year and three months or so, you know? Um, so we, we were joking like, you know, wow, when we started this, your daughter was just born. Now she's an adult, you know, <laughs> she's not, a, you know, she's one, she's one and a half. Um, <laughs> but it's, I, I like to take a lot of time and I like to have a lot of space between when you start and finish a project. And a lot of that involves, you know, just kind of constantly evaluating what you're doing and constantly trying new things and giving that extra amount of time that I think a project needs. And that's why I don't, I don't actively produce a lot of bands at once because of that reason. It's more about quality than anything. And however long it takes is how it takes. And that's kind of how my process is and I think that the bands I work with enjoy doing things that way as well. That makes sense to me. When it comes to writing, where do you see the I guess the line between writing and production? I think that the line in modern day times has been slowly disappearing because where you know where do you draw the line between writing and production? Traditionally production is was closer to engineering if I'm correct, right? I mean, it, it was it kind of when you go to a producer, you have your songs and then they set the mics up properly and they get you to have the right takes and they get they comp your vocals together and, and put, you know, maybe make an arrangement suggestion here and there. And then maybe, you know, they'll they'll help you find, you know, patches for the keyboard and stuff like that. And it's more traditionally that's like strict producing. Right. Yeah. And then writing is like you're coming up with ideas from nowhere. Right. Writing is like a, a very kind of nebulous process that involves starting with nothing and then you come up with something a chord progression or a synth line or a you know a whatever a pattern of some sort um so to me I, I think the line needs to be non-existent for me to properly get the most out of a band um that I work with and I think that's what my bands like to come to me for is like it's a combination of both right I'm doing the technical stuff, but I'm also overseeing the writing and, and, and coming up with ideas and, you know, kind of taking it from nothing to a finished product. So I think there's no excuse nowadays to not do that as a producer. I think there's so much technology that we have. There's, it's so easy yeah. to do all that. It's like, that's the, to me, that's the bare minimum. If you're going to be, call yourself a producer, you got to be taking the project from nothing to something. You got to be pulling your weight and giving input. And there are a lot of bands who, who want minimal producer contribution in a sense, right? Mm -hmm. Like very anal about their stuff and want to do it themselves and want the producer just to play the role, like minimal roles, as Dan said, like but, an engineer role, but no, when it comes to volumes, we'll be asking Dan for obviously everything, what we can get right. His engineering his producing his composing his mind. Right. And so we're very happy for that. So. One thing I'm curious about is what do you think about co-writes in metal? Like, do you think that the perception of that is changing? Because metal bands have always had co-writes, like the good ones at least right. have always had right. co-writes. But I feel like there was a point in time where it was like you didn't talk about it. Yeah, there's no cloud over that. Like, there's no taboo around it. Like, in the beginning, we didn't ever need co-writes, right? We had two supercomputer brain guys, right? And so... As Dan left, it was hard to fill those freaking shoes, man. So we did have to outreach other people to help out and co-write. Like Misha Mansour on No Sleep, Brandon Paddock on No Sleep. 
when you start off in a certain way, I mean, you, and if you don't really fill it in with another supercomputer DB, I mean, how the hell are you going to get back to where you were? So that's kind of always been sort of like an issue with the band in a sense, um, because, you know, we lost such a big soul member at, in the beginning, but, um, yeah, co-writes, we, we totally do it. And yeah. like on different animals, that's where Max Shad started to come in, right. co-writing with Max Shad. And I think it's, it's become much less of a taboo subject, co-writing. I think that everyone knows that it happens now and there's no like elitism over it that maybe there used to be when I think a lot of that came from the fans, from the audience not understanding that that's very normal to happen. Yeah. For me, there's always some sort of taboo. Like when we were doing Happier, like I was in the room with Max, like there, and I wanted to have some say and stuff or whatever, but like... Well, it's your band. Like, of course. I've always thought that the best bands do this. Yeah. Like, always. And it's just that, much like how in the 70s and 80s, a lot of times the person you think you were hearing isn't who you were hearing. You're hearing a session musician. A lot of famous guitar solos are not the rock star. They're the the session guitar player. And that kind of was like this really well-kept secret in the music industry. I think that a lot of the co-write stuff got filed under the same category of like, we don't talk about it. But the thing is, it's not the same thing as the lead guitar players too fucked up to play solos. We got to get this dude to come in and ghost like it's not the same thing it's yeah, maybe, maybe then yeah. there was a lot of money going around because people bought <laughs> albums you can give these guys hush money but nowadays you really actually want to appreciate and showcase what the co-writers do and you gotta you gotta appreciate them as people as artists and and you want to spread that around right and for us that's max shad and that's db right now you know and yeah and in the past it was misha with no sleep and brandon paddock right and you want to elevate these these artists in a sense, but not too much because you don't want other people to steal them from you. So, <laughs> well, I think it's a good time for producers uh, more more than ever. Yeah, you yeah. know, I think there was like there was a period when you know the the period you were kind of just talking about where it was more hush hush and you could pay people off and stuff like that. But I think I feel like it's kind of going back to back in the area era where there was like Quincy Joneses out there. You know, people like that 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 were known for their sound and what they can bring and, and it actually it's actually like a stamp that a band is excited to reveal right we exactly. we worked with this person you know and exactly it's kind of goes beyond the band because the cat's out of the bag now right so it's like if you have someone that you're excited about working with and that you feel like has elevated your project then it only really it kind of helps everyone and i was talking to you and i did the last spirit box mix y'all when i was saying how a producer and a band can kind of join forces and lift each other up yep right and it's sort of this this exchange of like you know, I, I want to help you make your music better. And in turn, you're going to help me make my career um, better. Yeah. And and you sort of grow, right? So to me, that's the beauty of, and that's why I love being a producer. It's like I get to, to sort of be like a half member in every band that I work with, right? It's And and it, it sort of it lifts me up when the band does well. It makes me more excited when, when a band that I worked with has success. Yeah. And, um, I won't let it go too astray. And like, there's a reason why Dan's here and helping the band. Cause he's part of the band, you know, um, we want to keep it as it was in the beginning and we won't f go too astray though. That's for sure. We, we just keep it where it needs to be. Stick to the roots. Well, yeah. Keep it in the family. Yeah. I'm excited to do this next record though. That's for sure. We gotta do piss, man. That was a banger. <laughs>
We could just start it with the sound of piss, maybe. I mean, does it need anything else? Nah. His old band had a song called Piss Christ, which is like the meanest song on earth. That song is sick. Piss Christ. We also had a song called Volumes. Yeah. Really? <laughs> that was, that was what enough. we named the band after. And Gus, the original vocalist, was in that band with me. And that was kind of where it was. Interesting. See, fun fact. see, Daniel walked so we could fly. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, he had a band before our band that was like the band, the sickest band with the sickest sound. And Rod was our biggest fan, dude. Literally. <laughs> me and Diego like, were our, our biggest fans <laughs> yeah, for Diego's, sure. Yeah. And um, that's awesome. Uh, we used to go to their shows, and me and Diego would be up front. We'd be side by side, but I had no idea who the fuck this kid was. But later on, we'd be in a band together, which is cool. It's cool how that shit works out. Yeah. yeah. I met my band boyfriend at an Unborn show. <laughs> <laughs> as far as production goes, what's the partnership like? So we talked about the writing side of it. I guess, Dan, when you're working with a co producer in a band, or the band is the co producer, how does that change? at all how you approach things as opposed to when I guess there isn't a co-producer to a certain extent when you're working with a band that's capable you're always working with a co-producer fair enough I think it's it's discrediting to say that the members of the band or at least the primary member writing member of the band is not also a producer I'm a strong believer in that because like we were saying, the lines between writing and producing, it's so blurry. I mean, I think anything that anyone brings to the table that elevates the song in any way is producing. So I am always an advocate of sharing that credit with whomever it is in the band that's actively doing that. And because of technology, I don't hold like a golden key, like, oh, I have the studio, so I'm the producer. Anyone in any of the projects I work with, and it is this way, is the active member is always sending me stuff with more than just guitar or more than just, you know, a bare bones song. You know, people are really producing stuff. You know, Mitch, Mitch from Silent Planet, Mike from Spirit Box, Rod over here. You know, everyone is always bringing ideas to the table that are more than just sitting in the room going, okay, Dan, we're ready for you to produce us. You know? Yeah, that, that would be unfair and it would be whack because it, it is putting a lot of uh, stress on the guy. But um, I think like Dan said, it's managing personalities and preparing for these sessions, right? If you know you're going to work with a band that has a lot of cooks in the kitchen, like three personalities, like it's all about finding a balance between where you're going to be, where your role is and where the band is. And, and that's what makes the project fun or not, because you have to communicate respectfully and, and stuff like that. And it's a lot to manage when there's a lot of cooks in the kitchen. I forgot to mention Rory from Dayseeker as well. But we'll be able to manage the volumes one coming soon, I'm pretty sure. It's nothing too crazy. It's going to be very, very fluid. Everyone has a really clear understanding. And, you know, for me, I think, the and I wrote about this a little bit in my Nail the Mix questionnaire. Uh, one of the questions was, what is the challenges of this mix slash production? And one of the challenges for the band is, this is a two vocalist band. So there's two mics in the band. One spells it with a Y. And that's how you can differentiate them. Mike and Mike are like, they're a duo, you know? So for me, it's not just about writing and then, you know, one guy writes something and the other one comes in and records this part and that's it. It's like, and I've had conversations with this. These guys are my friends. And I told them like, we need to write this together. I want you guys to come in and feel ownership over your parts and work out together the duality of, you know, how you guys are kind of, you know, uh, bouncing off of each other because that's, that's an element in this band that not a lot of bands have. Right. So 
I think that that that's something that is going to be very interesting to explore this time around with the album is getting the two vocalists to sort of become like one mind. And that's where my job becomes a bit like not a therapist, but like, I almost feel like sometimes like it is, I like to be like a coach, like, yo, like we can do this. You know, you guys are, you guys are fucking powerful together. Well, let's, let's, let's find your strengths. Let's sit in the room together. Let's go grab some beers and talk about it. You know, whatever it's, it goes, it's a lot of prep to sort of get the expectations set before you start creating. You got to know your role, right? And it's good to establish your roles beforehand because we've done records where you don't establish your roles and things get mixed up and it gets messy and stuff. But um, there will be times where you have to step back and let other people take lead. And that's comes with mental maturity and being mature as an artist and like just letting the process go. And number one, you got to do what's best for the song, right? For the band. And maybe you don't have the best right. idea and you have to back off and not take it personal and stuff like that. And it's for just sure. managing your expectations and, and, um, it's funny cause yeah, we used to be very hard to manage in the studio. Tons of personalities, you know, heavy personalities. It was conflicting and hard. To Hilarious do. personalities though. And it can tear you apart, even though it can but, make yeah. good music, it'll tear you apart from the inside, you know? So, you know, we're gonna. It's not like we have it all figured out. We're going to have to go through some hurdles together and respect each other and just make it through t- at the end, you know? I'm looking forward to what the future brings and, uh, very much looking forward to the nail the mix session. Yeah, dude. I'm fucking stoked on it, but I think this is a good place to end the uh, episode. I want to thank both of you for taking the time to hang out. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. And thanks Dan for having me here as well. Yeah. Thank you. Total pleasure as always. All right, then. Another URM podcast episode in the bag. Please remember to share our episodes with your friends as well as post them to your Facebook and Instagram or any social media you use. Please tag me at Audio at URM Academy and, of course, tag our guests as well. I mean, they really do appreciate it. In addition, do you have any questions for me about anything? Email them to me at al at urm.academy. That's E-Y-A-L at urm.academy and use the subject line, answer me, al. All right then, till next time, happy mixing. You've been listening to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit urm.academy and press the podcast link today.